You know, a number of years ago, uh, I would work late as a janitor trying to earn some money for college, and uh, I typically found myself having some really interesting conversations as we worked late into the night cleaning these buildings. One night, a friend and co-worker shared with me some interesting things he had seen Sunday morning at his church in Chicago. The church had recently hired a new worship leader and, uh, and his wife, both talented instrumentalists, to lead their congregation in worship. But after a time, he started to notice that this couple was packing up their instruments and leaving early when communion was served. Naturally, he was alarmed that the worship leader, everybody's going to be watching Clint now to see what he's doing. (laughs) Naturally, he was alarmed that the worship leader was not partaking of this important act of remembering the gospel. So my friend uh, went and chatted with a theology professor who also attended the same church. The professor approached the worship leader and his wife to find out more. He wasn't sure what was going on. Maybe they were going through something. Maybe they uh, had somewhere to be at the end of the service. Well, after doing some digging, the professor came to found out that this couple had responded to the church's job ad searching for talented artists who could lead an amazing worship experience, but no one had gone deep in discussion with them to find out what they really believed about God and the gospel. It would seem this church had hired amazing artists to lead them in their music every Sunday morning. A beautiful, emotional time, but it had not hired Christians. It had hired people to lead the congregation in praising and honoring God, but a God who these leaders did not know themselves. And without knowing them, we have to ask, without knowing him and who he is, how could they give him the praise and glory that he deserves without knowing him? The the challenge we must continually face when praising and worshiping God is keeping the focus on him and who he is. Whether that applies to our musical worship, our prayers of praise, our testimonials, proclaiming God's glory, or our work week. Whatever means we are using to praise God, the challenge is keeping Him and His glory the main thing. Keeping Him and His glory the main thing in our worship. Without that focus upon who he is and what he has done, worship can become more about us. More about us, more about what it makes us feel, and more about sounding good. Or worship, our worship should be driven by the glory of God. And when it is not, we need to take a step back. We need to take a step back and look at who he is. When we don't feel like worshiping, I'm sure we've all been there, we need to find ourselves astounded by the glory of God again. Whether we get too wrapped up in our own emotions or we come to church not feeling like worshiping at all, we must shift our focus back onto the glory and might of our Creator. 
Today we're going to wrap up our summertime song series. After all, it's not summer anymore now. Welcome to fall, everyone. And as we do so, I want us to pause on Psalm 29, the last psalm in our series. Psalm 29, if you want to get there in your Bible. A psalm that is pure praise. And we're going to consider the worthiness of God for our praise this morning. We'll look at the psalm, and first we'll see David's call to worship. If you need a Bible, go ahead and put up your hand. We're going to see David's call to worship. And then secondly, we're going to see that him demonstrate praise by pointing us to the glory of God and his works. And lastly, we're going to take a little bit of time to see what we could take away from the psalm before we continue to worship him through communion and singing this morning. Um, psalm 29 is a beautiful work of poetry written by David. Henry Ironside, the Christian author, and I believe he was a preacher, uh, Henry Ironside said it was one of the loveliest poems he had ever heard. It's actually the first psalm that we come across that is completely praise. All the psalms are praise-focused, but every single verse of Psalm 29 is about praising the glory of God. Though just a few verses long and having a very narrow focus, this psalm packs an epic punch. It starts in heaven, and it ends on earth. And packed in between these two places, heaven and earth, is this poetic beautiful imagery that uses the, me- the metaphor of a magnificent storm rolling over the entire kingdom of Israel, using that storm as a metaphor to picture the glory and rule of God. It's too bad there's not a thunderstorm today. The uh, perfect, perfect background. Actually, the uh, early, early Christians, the early church would... Uh, gather their children or the entire congregation, and read this psalm together when there were large storms. So next time, next time we could do that. Let's read verses 1 through 2. A psalm of David. Ascribe to the Lord, O heavenly beings, ascribe to the Lord the glory... Um, sorry, ascribe to the Lord the glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory do His name. Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. So David immediately starts this psalm by calling others to worship. Why? Why not just start yourself? Why start the psalm by calling others to worship? Well, first, let's uh, let's take a moment and figure out who he's speaking to. Who are these heavenly beings? Or as the original Hebrew phrases it, these sons of God, these sons of God or heavenly beings. Well, that term, sons of God, also occurs in Psalm 89, verses 5 through 7, which says, Let the heavens praise your wonders, O Lord, your faithfulness in the assembly of the holy ones. For who in the skies can be compared to the Lord? Who among the heavenly beings, or sons of God, is like the Lord, a God greatly to be feared in the counsel of the holy ones and awesome above all who are around him. So these heavenly beings we find here are described as those who dwell in heaven. They are a holy council 
and they surround God and they fear him. So this is the highest class of angels. This is the highest class of angelic beings in the heavenly realm, it would seem. And they bear this special title, the sons of God, not because they're divine, not because they're literally his sons, but because they have a royal privilege of sitting in the court of their king. So these are, this is the angelic court of God. So here is David, and he's appealing to this highest class of angelic beings, calling them to give the Lord glory and might, to give the Lord the glory that is due his name, to worship him in the splendor of holiness. Now, when diehard sports fans are truly excited and emotional about their team, whoever that might be, uh, I don't know who people like around here. What's the football team? Who? It varies. Oh, it varies. Okay. Yeah, I better be careful not say any particular names. But when people are truly excited about their sports team, they often realize their own voices when they're in the stadium are not enough to express the joy and the awe that they have for their team. So people bring clappers, or they bring megaphones, or they bring air, phone, uh, air horns, and you got to hope you're not stuck in front of one of those guys. They bring... These things so that they could bring as much praise and attention as they can to their team. They are so overwhelmed with excitement for their team that they look for the loudest, most intense way to express it. And David is so overwhelmed with the glory of God. He's so excited about his majesty that he looks for the best way to bring God the tremendous worship and honor that he deserves. So... Who would you appeal to? The highest of the angels and most glorious of God's creatures to give their best in worship to the Lord. He calls the council of heaven to worship their king. David is so overwhelmed with the glory of God that he wants them to give the glory that is due him, that he deserves. And then in the last line of this verse, he calls on them to worship in the splendor of holiness. The wording in the original suggests that he's telling them to bow down before God while adorned, putting on splendid, holy garments, robes that are holy and reflect who God is. He's calling on the heavenly council to worship the Lord by giving honor that is worthy of his name and and prostrating themselves before him in holy adornment that reflects who they're worshiping. Their worship should reflect who they're worshiping. We must realize the might and the glory of God when we bring him worship and praise. He is worthy of so much more than we can possibly give. Just as David was call, has called the angels to realize, we have to do our best to give him the praise that he deserves. Praise that doesn't reflect us or raise us up, but that keeps him the center. Our worship should reflect the splendor of his holiness, revealing how great he is. Now, while David realizes that what he has to offer God is not quite enough, 
he still ends up, well, and he ends up calling these, these angels to worship, but he doesn't stop from worshiping himself. Even though he realizes that what he has to bring is not quite enough, he offers the best that he can to God anyway in the next few verses. Not all of us are musically talented. Don't point any fingers. That shouldn't stop us from trying to give him the praise that he deserves. Some of us aren't musically uh, talented in the slightest bit. But there are so many other ways to worship and praise God. David recognizes the height of the glory of God, the glory that he deserves to be given, and then he continues to offer his personal praise to him the best that he can. Let's look now at verses 3 to 4, where David uses the metaphor of this magnificent storm to help us imagine the great glory of God. It says, The voice of the Lord is over the waters. The God of glory thunders. The Lord over many waters. The voice of the Lord is powerful. The voice of the Lord is full of majesty. So what's going on here? Is the Lord shouting at the ocean or is there something more spiritual that's being explained in poetic language here? Well, the phrase many waters, many waters is actually used throughout the Old Testament to refer to the enemies and nations that come against God and his authority. So these many waters represent the enemies of God. Let's look at Habakkuk 3, 13 through 16. It'll be up on the screen if you don't want to flip there. Let's do a little word study. Here Habakkuk uses the same kind of language referring to the many waters to, to uh, refer to the destruction of God's enemies. This is Habakkuk describing that day of judgment. You went out for the salvation of your people, for the salvation of your anointed. You crushed the head of the house of the wicked, laying him bare from thigh to neck. You pierced with his own arrows the heads of his warriors, who came like a whirlwind to scatter me, rejoicing as if to devour the poor in secret. You trampled the sea with your horses, the surging of mighty waters i hear and my body trembles my lips quiver at the sound rottenness enters my bones my legs tremble beneath me yet i will wait quietly for the day of trouble to come upon the people who invade us so notice that the trampled mighty waters are paralleled with the defeated enemies of god so this is a word picture. The mighty waters are the enemies that threaten God's people. Mighty waters can be found throughout the Old Testament to refer to his enemies. The ancient Hebrew people tended to be a little bit more poetic than we probably are. They live by the sea. So you could imagine why they would think of these threatening waves and think of their enemies. But despite the threats of the enemies... David shows us that the Lord is a mighty king whose commanding voice comes against them just like the, the thunder of a storm comes against the waves of a sea. 
Frequently when the Lord's voice is compared to thunder in Scripture, it's in context where he is commanding as a ruler. So here, even those who would challenge the Lord's authority and threaten his people are under the authority of his command. It doesn't matter if they're his enemies. doesn't matter how great they seem. His voice still commands them. So what we will see throughout the next few verses is this imagery of God speaking and commanding the nations that challenge him. Um, Some of us have dads with loud voices. Uh, My dad certainly does. He's a very good man, but you knew growing up when you were in trouble. You could hear him across the house. Uh, His commanding voice got your attention. But when a father speaks with an angry, commanding voice to his enemies... It's not the children who are scared. It's not the children who are terrified. The children are comforted. I remember seeing uh, the anger on my dad's face when someone threatened me as a kid. I was uh, being stupid and imitating the youth group kids when I was little. Not always a good idea. And uh, I did something stupid, so uh, a stranger, an adult, came up and threatened me. Uh... And I could see on my dad's face the anger of wanting to protect me. He didn't even have to raise his voice. Thankfully, the guy who threatened me got away before my dad arrived, actually. I knew he was strong and that he could protect me from my enemies. His voice was strong. But I knew it was his enemies that had to fear him. David continues on to show in the next lines that the Lord, like a heavenly, fatherly king, has a voice that commands his enemies and conquers them. They fear him. Verses 5 through 6 say, The voice of the Lord breaks the cedars. The Lord breaks the cedars of Lebanon. He makes Lebanon to skip like a calf and Syrian like a young wild ox. Now, Lebanon was known for its mighty cedars, these massive trees. It was a mark of pride for them. They had these massive trees that were known far and wide and symbolized their power. But here, when the Lord speaks, the trees symbolizing their power and pride simply splinter at his command. Before the command of the Lord, the pride of the nations is brought to destruction. We see the same kind of imagery in other parts of the Old Testament used to show that the Lord conquers and humbles the pride of his enemies, such as Isaiah 2, 11 through 17, which again describes a day when the Lord brings judgment upon his enemies. Uh, Isaiah 2:11 says, "The haughty looks of man shall be brought low, and the lofty pride of men shall be humbled, and the Lord alone will be exalted in that day. For the Lord of hosts has a day against all that is proud and lofty, against all that is lifted up, and it shall be brought low against all the cedars of Lebanon. There it is again. Lofty and lifted up against all the oaks of Bashan, against all the lofty mountains. Note that. Against all the lofty mountains. Not that, nothing to do with us. We'll come back to it. 
and against all the uplifted hills, against every high tower and against every fortified wall, against all the ships of Tarshish, against all the beautiful craft, and the haughtiness of man shall be humbled. And the lofty pride of men shall be brought low. And the Lord alone will be exalted in that day. So the cedars of Lebanon and the high mountains are something that the Old Testament uses to represent the pride of humans, the pride of the nations, those who challenge the Lord's authority. Now, Lebanon and Syrian... Uh, both were at the northern border of Israel, and they were places that were filled with mountains. And uh, these mountains shake and tremble here in Psalm 29 at the Lord's voice. These towering places are nothing more than being like small animals that skip and jump when they hear the shout of his voice. Now, I don't recommend doing it, but you can imagine what it would be like to walk up behind a young calf and scare it. Probably jump around, get a little frightened. Don't do that. Uh, You might get kicked. But these things, these mountains that represent the pride of the nations, when he commands the cedars of Lebanon splinter, the mighty mountains jump and skip. The pride of men is brought to ruin. It is subject to his voice, to his command. It's nothing. Now, he can, David continues on in verses 7 to 9 to say, The voice of the Lord flashes forth flames of fire. The voice of the Lord shakes the wilderness. The Lord shakes the wilderness of Kadesh. Now, um, Your translation may have verse 9 say, The voice of the Lord makes the deer give birth. Uh, But if yours has a footnote, some of them do. Uh, Personally, I think the footnote actually has the better English translation, saying that the voice of the Lord makes the the oaks shake. Now, I don't want to spend too much time belaboring the discussion of the translation, but basically I'll just say this. In the Hebrew, both phrases are spelled the same way. So um, I think what fits the context is the reference to the mighty oaks. So I'm just going to plug that in and keep rolling. And if you want to talk about it more, buy me some coffee. Um, But let's plug in the alternative so we can keep going. The voice of the Lord flashes forth flames of fire. The voice of the Lord shakes the wilderness. The Lord shakes the wilderness of Kadesh. The voice of the Lord makes mighty trees tremble and strips the forest bare. And in his temple all cry glory. So not only does the voice of the Lord command the enemies of God, but it actually attacks and it conquers like lightning bolts and flashes of fire coming from a storm. Not hard for us to picture recently with our massive storms and our forest on a mountain. The storm shakes the wilderness. It shakes the oaks. It strips the forest bare, moving from the northern kingdom to the south, revealing his power. Now, I can imagine that this metaphor, this poem that David's using to describe God was probably inspired by a real massive storm that he saw sweep across his land. 
And with all this power of God revealed over the realm of men, it causes those who worship the Lord to simply cry, Glory in his temple. They are left in awe of his might. I don't know if you've ever seen a storm that has left you in awe. I remember about 10 years ago uh, getting stuck on the side of the mountain with my dad in a snowstorm and having to hike out. I told him I didn't think it was a good idea. He'll never live it down. Um, In the middle of the snowstorm, I saw flashes of lightning and heard cracks of thunder. And it was beautiful. But all I could think in the moment was, I'm going to die. I survived, thankfully. And I'm sure we've all experienced storms that have left us in awe. There was another storm I remember with lightning striking so close to my house, actually frequently in New Mexico in the heart of the monsoon, where my house would just shake at its foundation. I remember being in Ohio one night when a tornado rolled through um, the county one evening. When you looked outside the window, got a quick break from hiding in the basement, and you uh, snuck up to the window and got to look out real quickly, there was so much lightning, it looked like the sun was shining and flickering. Everything was just lit up, lighting up the trees. Now, the next day, well, some of those trees did not fare so well. We drove around town, and there were trees and branches down everywhere. That is what the proud nations of men are before the commanding voice of the Lord. Humbled, brought low, conquered. And just like a magnificent storm, the command and rule of the Lord over the pride of his enemies and the nations of the world should leave us in awe. Struck speechless. Leaving with nothing on our lips but glory. But there's more to praise the Lord for. So David continues. Verse 10. The Lord sits enthroned over the engulfing waters. The Lord sits enthroned as the eternal king. The Lord gives his people strength. The Lord grants his people security. I like how the the New English translation lays out these verses here. It helps bring the, the force of the language a bit to the surface. David is envisioning the Lord sitting enthroned over these engulfing, flooding, surging waters that represent his enemies. Not just sitting, notice, but enthroned eternally over them. Enthroned eternally over them. Satan and the rulers of this world certainly have power but only because the true ruler of creation permits them to. They remain under his command, and he will bring them low. He reigns as king eternally, enthroned over those who oppose him. He rules forever, and because he does, because his voice commands his enemies and brings the pride of men low, he conquers them. And his people are saved. The Lord provides salvation, deliverance from his enemies. It's interesting to note that this psalm 
starts with the angels singing glory to God in the highest and ends with a statement about peace on earth, goodwill to men. Almost like a Christmas song. And just as with Christmas, this psalm, I know you guys are like, it's the first day of fall, Rob. We're not ready for Christmas yet. I'm excited. Uh, And just as with Christmas, this psalm should remind us of the gospel that we celebrate with communion here today. As we remember that a God worthy of all the praise and glory of heaven would take mind of our fallen world, exercising his judgment over sin and bringing salvation, bringing his people strength and peace through the death and resurrection of his son. Now David calls upon the highest of angels to worship. Then he continues to worship the Lord for his command over his enemies, his, his conquering of them, that he rules forever and that he brings his people salvation. All these things David is worshiping him for. So what can we take away from this psalm today? How can we apply it? Well, first and foremost, we need to bring him the worship that he deserves. We need to bring him the worship that he deserves. And that starts with making our worship about him and not about ourselves. Don't be afraid to worship, even if you don't feel like it or if you don't feel like you're talented enough, I should say. David recognizes that he wasn't quite capable of giving God the glory that he deserved in comparison to the angels. David, uh, David didn't stop anyway. That didn't stop David. It's about God, not about you. Give him your best. And this doesn't just go for worship or praise and music. Give him your best prayers. Give him your most sincere heart and communion when we take it today. Speak of his greatness to the people around you. Give your best worship through gardening through your hobbies, through working with your hands, whatever it may be, he deserves the best from you. But not only that, our worship should reflect his holiness. Is your life a reflection of his holiness? Do you pursue reflecting his good character in your life day by day when you walk out of church? Second, worship should be a response to learning about who he is. This is why I love closing songs. Not because it means I get to go home and eat lunch, though I don't mind that, but because after having the morning to sit and hear about him from the word, I can respond by either taking communion or singing. And after hearing from his word, my mind is now more on him and less on myself as I come in worship. If you have trouble coming with a mind that is on his glory to worship, maybe pause the evening before or the morning before you come to the worship service. Open your Bible. Spend some time looking ahead at what the passage might be. Reading the passage that was preached the week before. Get him and his glory on your mind before you worship. Sometimes I need to do this. I need to find a moment to pause and reflect on his word before I come to worship. Because life can be hard or just plain mundane. And it's hard to let the things going on in my head go when I come to worship. 
I could lose sight of his glory. And reading about him helps to get my mind on him. Now, third, emotions are not the main thing in worship, but they are important. I occasionally hear people make comments about how a worship experience didn't make them feel the emotions that they were expecting. That they didn't feel on fire during the music. The point of musical worship isn't to get us feeling emotional for emotion's sake. Because goodness, that emotion can fade fast. Out the door on Sunday morning to everyday life and something else will captivate your emotions. You're done being moved by the music, now it's time to be go moved by something else, maybe the football game. The excitement and emotions should come from recognizing who he is, his glory and might, all that he does, that he rules, that he commands, and he saves. And then, yes, that should make us feel excited and emotional. It's emotion in response to who he is. Fourth, our Worship should call others to worship as well. David called upon the highest heavenly beings to praise God. Earlier in the service, Clint read uh, a brief section from Psalm 117 for our call to worship. Read that today, if you will, Psalm 117, a mini psalm in which the psalmist calls upon all the peoples of the earth to praise the Lord with their voices. You know, this is the end to which all the story of Scripture is moving. With all of creation worshiping God, that's the end to which our whole story is moving. If you think about it, we share the, when we share the gospel, we do missions. We do it because people don't worship God. Someone once said, missions exist because worship doesn't in the world. Missions exist because worship doesn't. People don't praise the God who made them. So we must let them know about him. We're building worshipers by building the kingdom. That could be a challenging standard by which we can measure how true our worship is. If we are truly worshiping him, does our worship drive us to share the gospel with others? To call them to praise? Are we content with keeping his glory to ourselves are we happy with keeping his glory to ourselves real worship should be worship that we spread to others today we've looked at psalm 29 a beautiful short yet complex little psalm and we've seen the call to give god the worship that his glory truly deserves then David has reminded us why he's worthy. Because he commands his enemies. He conquers his enemies. He sits enthroned forever and he brings his people salvation and deliverance. What a great God we worship. All praise and glory be to him. At this time, I'm going to pray. As I do so, the worship team will come and... uh, Prepare to lead us in worship. In a little while, we're going to take communion. But we're going to have an extended time right now where we do what we've been talking about. We're going to bring the Lord the worship and the glory that he deserves through music 
And after a little while, I'm going to come back up and give us further instructions for communion. But right now, I'm going to pray while the worship team comes up. God, you are a great king. We fail to always realize that you are enthroned, that your enemies are nothing in comparison to you. Lord, we get so caught up with the things of this world, with the mundane, with the problems we face. It's hard to adjust our focus back onto you. Lord, help us to be captivated by your voice, by your command, by your rule from the throne. Help us in this time as we come before you in worship to give you what you deserve. I pray this in Jesus' name.